transitioning this morning. We are in Matthew's gospel. We continue to truck along in Matthew's gospel. We're in Matthew chapter 11. So if there's a black Bible near you around the room, if you brought your Bible, or if you want to turn on your Bible, I'd recommend that you would do that however you see fit. Go to Matthew chapter 11. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, if you haven't used a Bible before, go to the table of contents in the black Bible near you, then look for Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament, and then turn to chapter 11, the biggest numbers chapter 11. Those mark the the chapters, the big numbers there. This uh, is God's Word. We're picking up in verse 2 this morning, but I'm going to start with verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing His 12 disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. That finished us last week. Now, verse 2, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified or known by her deeds. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for, all, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades." For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would, have been, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is God's word. There's a lot here. Let's pray. Father, would you guide us through it? Spirit, would you open our minds to understand what you're doing with this text and what you want to do in our lives today because of this ancient writing? Would you lead us to see and to love and to treasure and to value Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. We look to you. We trust in you. In Jesus' name, empower us. Amen. Here's some food for thought this morning. Doubt is most compelling when we find ourselves enduring 
tough circumstances. Doubt is most compelling when we find ourselves enduring tough circumstances. A man named Henry Drummond, he was a Scottish uh, biologist and evangelist. He said this, he said, Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief, or to say it positively, he always distinguished between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is can't believe, unbelief is won't believe, doubt is honesty, unbelief is obstinacy, doubt is looking for light, unbelief is content with darkness. Let that just kind of ring in your ears a bit this morning. Here's the big idea. Here's where I'm going. Here's that, that, that quote will come up on the screen towards the end as well. Um, here's the big idea this morning. The best place, the best place to work out our doubts is in the presence of Jesus. The very best place for you to work out your uncensored thoughts, to bring your uncensored prayers is in the presence of Jesus. And, and as an aside, I want you to know He is gentle with our doubts and He is serious about our lack of transformation. And we see that in the tension in this text. He's, now John the Baptist comes to Jesus with doubt. So I've got four points this morning. I'm just going to give you a heads up. Here's where I'm going. Um, John doubts his doubts by coming to Jesus. John doubts his doubts by seeking out Jesus. Jesus affirms, he'll affirm and he'll commend John the baptizer. Jesus is justified about his doubts regarding humanity, and he is justified in his judgments, whatever they may be. So we're going to start in verses 2 through 6 this morning. Now, according to Matthew's gospel, according to what we have just read, the greatest person of all ever to live, ever born of woman, other than Jesus, we would have to probably say, is it had serious doubts. The greatest person ever to live had serious doubts. Though physically unable, John was in prison at this time. He, he went straight to Jesus through two of his disciples as a way of dealing with the doubts that he was having about Jesus. He could have stewed in his prison cell endlessly, just letting his mind loop and loop and loop. Uh, is he? Is he not? He could have talked endlessly with other disciples as well. What do you think, right? Asking them what their impression of Jesus is, but instead John doubted his doubts about Jesus by going straight to Jesus. Now, I'm, the commentators have a few different takes on what's actually going on as John is sending his disciples to Jesus here to ask. Um, and I'm tempted, I'm tempted to believe this one, uh, and a handful of commentators believe it too. Um, they say that Jesus, had, Jesus and John had a little insider game going on like a, a bit of an inside joke between the two of them, right? They say, of course, John knew that Jesus is Messiah, but he sent his disciples to Jesus on a bit of a fact-finding mission to confirm for them, to have them confirm for themselves that Jesus really is who he says he is. Like it was a way to get them to transition and become Jesus' disciples as John is now in prison. It was like John's and Jesus' little pet project. Here's you know, how they're going to ultimately believe in you, Jesus. It's plausible. Uh, I think it seems more likely, though, that John was having actual doubts about Jesus. Uh, here's a question for you to 
ask and answer, do you ever have doubts about who the scriptures say Jesus is? Do you ever have doubts about what the scriptures say about Jesus, about who he is, about his divinity, about if he's good, about if he listens to your prayers, answers your prayers? If you do, you're in good company. Doubt is most compelling when we find ourselves struggling with tough circumstances. And if you have struggled through tough circumstances, you'll know as you doubt too that as time draws on and there's not resolution, your doubts can become even more compelling. So I'll say it like this, doubts come on strongest when we're struggling. You probably know this from your own experience. Doubts come on strongest when we're struggling. Some years before... um, Before this moment, before this question that John the Baptist is asking Jesus here, he had, John actually, had an encounter with God as he baptized Jesus. The the record of the Gospels tell us that the heavens were torn open, that a voice spoke from the heavens saying, this is Jesus, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. John was the guy in the water dunking Jesus at his baptism here. John's own dad, a guy named Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, had an encounter with an angel of God who told Zechariah who his son, John the Baptist, would be. And this angel said in Luke chapter 1 that he would be one, that that John the Baptist would be one who would live before the Messiah came and he would be one who would have the spirit of, he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, this Old Testament kind of fiery prophet. Um, when John was in utero, when he was in the womb, uh, he like the, the scriptures tell us that he leapt, that he started going crazy in his mom Elizabeth's belly as Jesus, who was in his mom Mary's womb, walked into their house. These guys are cousins, but they actually lived in dif- different towns. It would be like living in Post Falls and living in Coeur d'Alene without vehicles and without bicycles. Right? It can be hard to travel and to see and to cover that kind of distance. It's going to take a bit of planning. So you're not just going across the street to hang out with cousin Jesus, but you might have just had some intermittent inter- interactions with him. And so it's plausible that John and Jesus weren't really the best of friends, that they didn't have a ton of exposure to one another. John, and as he's out, he's this kind of fiery prophet out in the wilderness declaring that the Messiah is coming. He has an encounter with Jesus and he calls people's attention to Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He also would say that the one, there was one who was coming after him who would baptize people with fire and the Holy Spirit. So for John, things were really exciting and he was expectant. Now, you might not think of John in this light, but John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. He shows up in our New Testament, so we don't really know what to do with him, but he's actually an Old Testament prophet, and he was fiery. His message wasn't gentle on hearts. He's speaking a message of judgment. His message wasn't gentle on people's way of life. He's saying, change He's unbending in his thus saith the Lord proclamations, and rightfully so, which got him in trouble, a lot of trouble, with the influencers, with the politicians, with the power brokers of his day. John, the way that he got in trouble, trouble that would actually cost him his head, literally, is that he denounced this kind of puppet king, a guy named Herod Antipas. He denounced this king's unlawful marriage to his sister-in-law, 
And he was thrown in prison because of it, and he's languishing there. Prison is a place where people think a lot, like a lot. Seems like the only thing that you have to do in prison is think. Ask anybody who's been there. Let's not, let's not forget, though, that John was, yes, he was a prophet, but he was also human. John the Baptist was human. And so he sends his disciples to find Jesus just to be sure that he's really the Messiah. He'd heard reports about Jesus' preaching and healing, but Jesus' words and his works didn't meet his own expectations for what the Messiah would be like. Everybody in that day had an understanding of what the Messiah would be like, what he would come and what he would do. So probably like everybody else, John thought the Messiah would be this cleansing warrior who would kick the Romans out, who'd get rid of the Romans. And when Jesus didn't behave the way that John expected him to, John was a bit disillusioned. When Jesus doesn't behave the way that we expect him to, we can become disillusioned with him too, can't we? Perhaps that was the root of John's doubt, but John does the right thing. He does the best thing here. He goes straight to Jesus with his question. He says, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? It appears that Matthew wants you and I asking the very same question. Remember, these gospels, they're not just written by some backwoods authors who are doing their best to try to record the life of Christ. The Holy Spirit is inspiring these authors to record the words and the works of Jesus. And not only that, but he's using their human reason and their intellect and their genius to arrange these gospels to teach theological points. Matthew was a masterful architect, a literary architect. He was an incredible writer. And I think that Matthew regularly wants us asking similar questions. Jesus, are you the one, or should I be looking for someone else? Look at verses 4 to 6 here in Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus answered these disciples that John sent to him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. He's quoting straight out of Isaiah chapter 35 and 61. Go and tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, a uh, commentator I use a lot in Matthew, he says that Jesus answers in a kind of code that's going to be familiar to those who are steeped in Old Testament Scripture. So it's going to be this phrase that Jesus is saying to these disciples of John is immediately going to be recognized by John as being from Isaiah, another Old Testament prophet. So Jesus is telling John, Bruner says, this is it, John. The Messianic time has broken into our time, as you can see from the things that I've been able to do. John, I am the one who is coming. So it's almost like John, Jesus is saying, tell John all of this and ask him if he wants to wait for another. R.C. Sproul, he writes about this line where Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended or scandalized by me. R.C. Sproul writes, it was as if Jesus was giving John a mild rebuke, saying, John, be careful that you don't let your improper expectations cause you to question me. Sproul writes, that's good advice for us today. We need to guard against dissatisfaction with what Jesus accomplished in his work of redemption. 
Selah. Pause and reflect on that. We need to guard against dissatisfaction with what Jesus accomplished in His work of redemption. He has done everything necessary to save us, to justify us, to bring us into His family, to bring us, to to reconcile us to the Father and to secure for us eternal blessedness. But we often resent His failure to, to meet some other expectation that we have of Him. We must remember that Jesus is under no obligation to do anything for us. If He were to take our lives today, we would have no reason to do anything but praise Him forever for what He has done for us. So Sproul writes, let us take care not to be offended because of Him. Now Jesus treats John and these disciples in this moment with dignity and He answers this question And he helps them to answer that question for themselves. But then in this moment in verses 7 through 15, Jesus turns to the crowds who are gathered around him and he begins to affirm and he begins to commend John the baptizer. So John has just sought out Jesus, coming straight to Jesus with his own doubts and questions. And now Jesus starts talking John up behind his back, which is the only kind of talking that we should do about another person behind their back talking them up, building them up. He says, did you come to see a reed blown about by the wind? Nope. He's saying somebody that's just getting turned by every cultural wind that blows? No, no, no. Like, John wasn't a reed. He's a redwood. That's what people loved so much about John and why people were flocking to this message is because he was so sturdy, so, afra- so unafraid of confrontation. Jesus said, did you come to see somebody of royalty, somebody who's rich, somebody who's fashionable? Nope. Literally, this guy lives on bugs and in a camel hair rug. Like that's who John is. He's a bit of a redneck of the day. He's a bit weird. He's far from refined. Jesus says he's more like a prophet, or maybe actually he's more than a prophet. He's the messenger who comes right before the Messiah, according to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. In Malachi, this is the the last book of our Old Testament. In the second to last chapter, Malachi is this prophet who goes, who is the last prophet to speak before the Old Testament go. Uh, the Old Testament prophets go silent for four hundred years until John starts speaking again. And Malachi says this. He records these words from God: "Behold, I send my messenger, and he, this messenger, will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming," says the Lord of hosts. And then in Malachi four five, he gets really specific, and he says, "It, it will be uh, Elijah who will come, or one with the spirit of Elijah." And so. The Jews, in their understanding, as they're looking for this coming Messiah, they're looking for a messenger who will come and to begin to prepare the way. And they expected this messenger to be in the spirit of or actually Elijah, this fiery Old Testament, shadowy Old Testament prophet. There's no record of Elijah's death in the Old Testament at all. 
And so, and, and I think because of that, Jews have expected Elijah to return and to prep the way for Messiah's appearing. And so, whenever you read the four Gospels, you'll, you'll, you'll hear these references. They'll either be um, a, talking about John or talking about Jesus, and they'll say, like, who do, who do people say that I am? Elijah? Or people are asking John the Baptist, are you Elijah? Right? So they're whispering about these, these two guys, Jesus and John. They're saying, is this Elijah? Is he the one who's paving the way? And so these Jews of Jesus' day, they're grappling with their own nation, Israel's history, tradition, prophecy, and they're grappling with the identities of these two very powerful men. And Jesus says, John is the greatest man ever to live. Nobody born of women is greater than John. But again, Matthew knows what he's doing here. What does that make Jesus? What do we do with Jesus then? Matthew wants you to ask that question. He wants us to wrestle with these texts. And then Jesus spins us around and amazes us again. This is a sort of riddle. If you feel your brain breaking a little bit at it, you're in good company because I do too. Jesus will say, but the littlest one of the kingdom is actually going to be greater than the greatest of men. Here's the big idea. John is the last Old Testament prophet. He's this messenger who comes just before the king of the kingdom. He's the great one introducing the greatest one. Now, if I'm going to transition to our culture today and in a sports reference, if I, am, if, I, if I say to you, hey, who is the great one? Who is it? Somebody just said Wayne Gretzky. People call Wayne Gretzky the great one. Why do people call Wayne Gretzky the great one? Because of his accomplishments. This guy, I'm not a hockey fan. I don't follow hockey, but I know Wayne Gretzky now after this last week because his name came to mind, and so I just did a little searching on him. He is the only player in the NHL, the National Hockey League, to score over 200 goals in one season. Now, a hockey goal is worth one point. So he's got 200 goals in one season. He's the only person in the NHL. He retired like 20 years ago to do that, the only one, and he did it four times, four seasons. The, the NHL has actually retired this guy's number league-wide. The number 99 cannot be worn by anybody in the NHL, doesn't matter what team you're playing for. They haven't even done that for Michael Jordan. Now, like I said, I'm not a hockey fan. I'm not going to bore you with all of his accomplishments, but those are significant but Wayne Gretzky is called the greatest one. Why? Because of his amazing accomplishments. But if we look at John the Baptist the same way we look at Wayne Gretzky, we'll misunderstand what Jesus Christ is saying. Listen to R.C. Sproul again. In biblical categories, to be great is not simply to excel in one thing or another. Rather, it's to be in a position of extraordinary blessedness. So the scriptures don't mean that you beat everyone in your field when they call somebody great. They mean this person is profoundly blessed, profoundly privileged, profoundly happy. 
John got to live in a time and fulfill a purpose that no other prophet did in the Old Testament. He got to announce this promised one who would crush the head of the serpent in the garden. We were going through the whole story series a few months ago, just studying the, the story of Jesus in the Scriptures. All of the people of Israel and the prophets are expecting one to come who will crush the head of the serpent, and John got to be the MC who announced his arrival in this moment. But John actually lost his head. He was beheaded before he got to see the kingdom come in power and before he got to live as a citizen in the kingdom. He got right up to the edge, but John the Baptist didn't get to go in. Here's what the Scriptures are saying and teaching. You and I, however, the little ones... We're living in this kingdom that Jesus brought into reality through his perfect life. He fulfilled the Old Testament law and the prophets. He was the perfect one who never sinned before the Father. He lived in our place. We know that we sin all the time, but one greater than us has lived who has never sinned and fulfilled the law of God, therefore making him able, qualifying him to take the wrath of God for our sin. And he did it on the cross on our behalf. He stood in our place. He pushed us out of the way of the bus and he took the wrath of God that was due to us for our sin upon himself. The righteous one did. And his resurrection as he rose on the third day from the grave proved Jesus' power and proved his qualification and proved his authority. Now, here's where it gets real for us because God has ordained that you and I should live in this particular time, we, you and I, are enjoying a greater period of greatness, blessedness than John the Baptist. Because God has ordained us to live on this side of the cross, we can look back, we are enjoying a greater period of blessedness than even John the Baptist got to experience. From our position, we can see Jesus more clearly than anyone who came before him, including John the Baptist. So oftentimes we'll say, man, I wish I could live in Jesus' day. Yes, I, I want to have encounters with him in the flesh too. But like, let's not mistake the position in history that we occupy where we can look back in a great tradition, 2,000 years of church history and theologian after theologian after theologian searching the scriptures and the record of Jesus' life and going, this is actually who he, he is, who he said he was. So we get to see Jesus more clearly than people of his own day did. They're wrestling. Who is this guy? I can't believe it. I don't believe it. Frederick Dale Bruner says, even the tiniest person in this completely new world stands taller than the great John. Even the tiniest person in the new covenant era stands taller than the great John. So I want to ask you this question. Do you, disciple, put your trust in Jesus do you aim your trust? Do you aim the weight of your belief in Jesus? Then, if that answer is yes, Jesus is saying this to you about you. Great one. That's your reality. Jesus is saying that you and I have a greater vantage point than even John the Baptist had. 
Yet even though John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, uh, his fate was a foretaste of the conflicts which are already beginning to crack violently against the kingdom of God in this new era. God's kingdom is breaking in and people are violently opposing it. And so the kingdom of God invites violence as and invites opposition as it advances, as it advances, which is why persecution is still a reality. Now Jesus transition, transitions here in verse verses sixteen, and he and he gives this bit of a like a, a cultural saying here that's been hard for me to understand over the years, and I've come to clarity on it finally as I'm just studying it this week. I'm like, okay, I have a solid grasp. I I believe on what's going on here. Jesus is justified in his doubts about humanity. He, he turns from affirming and commending John to these crowds to now saying, beginning to like open up a bit of a rebuke here. He's saying what is true about them and what is saying, he's saying what is true about their culture. Remember, he's not just speaking to a bunch of Gentiles here. He's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to insiders. It would be like him speaking to us, the church. His people, Israel, are out of, they're out of touch with reality, and so Jesus is calling them out. There's a couple of ways that we could look at this. Um, Jesus could be calling the people of Israel children. So he says here, um, it's like children in verse 16, sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, we played the flute like in a, in, for a wedding and you didn't dance and we sang a dirge at a funeral and you didn't mourn. He could be calling the people of Israel children here and saying that you guys totally misunderstand the times. You're celebrating when you should be mourning. You're mourning when you should be celebrating. Or Jesus could be saying that actually he and John the Baptist are the children and it's like they as the children are calling out and announcing good news and the people don't respond in an appropriate way to the good news. And then John comes and calls out about judgment and they're not responding in an appropriate way in repentance. In other words, their judgment, the people's judgment, their discernment is completely out of touch. So whichever interpretation, whether it's John and Jesus as the children here or the people of Israel as the children, whichever interpretation you go with, the outcome is the same. The people, especially Israel's leaders, got John wrong and they got Jesus wrong. They got him wrong. John's too spiritual. This guy's way too devoted. He's way too extreme. Like, John, you got to chill out, man. You're freaking people out. And brush your teeth, please. <laughs> but Jesus wasn't spiritual enough. So while John's a buzzkill because he's too spiritual, Jesus is not spiritual enough. He's too easy on sinners. He's too easy on tax collectors. He's too easy, too loose with the law. He's too ready to accept the unacceptable and to share a table with them, to actually eat a meal with them, which would make him unclean in their culture, not according to the Scriptures, but according to their wider culture and their interpretation of the Scriptures. And so the people, as they're wrestling with Jesus and they're wrestling with John, they're slandering John and they're slandering Jesus. And because Jesus is the Son of God, they're actually blaspheming Him. And because they're accusing John the Baptist of having a demon, they're actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit because John was empowered with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had lived flawlessly, not a glutton, not a drunkard. These people didn't just have doubts. They had deep-seated unbelief. Henry Drummond, doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't. 
Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. But what we know about Jesus from our vantage point in history is that Jesus, like His way of life was in accord with His teaching and with the Scripture's teaching. And John's teaching in the wilderness was in accord with His way of life and with the Scripture's teaching. Jesus is saying that if you stay out of touch, which is truly reality, you will be condemned. And God, the one whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are higher than our ways, He will weigh each one of us and the cultures that we create. So there's warning for us here at the church. Are we submitting to Jesus on His terms or are we insisting that we'll only accept Him if He comes to us on our terms? One of those responses to Jesus will lead to unimaginable comfort and the other will lead to condemnation. Jesus was incredibly gentle, but He did not tiptoe around Galilee or unbelief. And He is justified in His judgments, whatever they may be. Look at verses 20 through 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these are Old Testament cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more, toler- more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades or hell, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So what Jesus is doing here is he's naming three lake towns that are on the northern shore of Galilee, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus's home base of mission. It was where he had, where he headquartered, literally. Jesus seems to be saying that even these notoriously wicked Old Testament cities that figured so heavily in the Old Testament, Tyre, Sidon, and Gomorrah, they would have been more, they were Gentile cities even. They would have been more receptive to what was obviously the work of God through Jesus. He did all kinds of mighty works in these three cities, but they shrugged him off. They didn't repent. Repentance is this word that comes to a lot of us with a lot of baggage, especially if you have like a really strict legalistic background, if you have a Catholic upbringing, repentance can be a bit of a dirty word. Repentance truly originates in our heads, works its way down into our hearts and begins to seep or leak out of our hands. Repentance in the way that the scriptures mean it A repentant posture brings about an entirely changed way of thinking, a way of feeling, and a way of living. So here's what I want to say about repentance. To be committed to a lifestyle of repentance is not to be committed to doom and to gloom and to guilt and to sadness. 
Like we got to just hang our heads because we live a lifestyle of repentance. Actually, on the flip side, to be committed to a lifestyle of repentance is to be constantly comforted by the joy of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our minds, our hearts, our way of life are calibrated by our great creator, our great redeemer, and our great friend. He is consistently coming to you and I saying, change your mind about who I am. You're functionally running away from me because you think I'm going to smash you. Actually, run to me that I can comfort and restore you. Jesus does not shame John when John comes with his doubts. That would have been pastorally unhelpful. It would have been clumsy. John wasn't unbelieving. John was struggling. Jesus treated John with respect and gave him the clarity that he sought, saying that the blind will receive their sight and the lame will walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so I I want you to know this. I want you to hear this. Neither will Jesus shame you or I when we come to him weary and struggling, but If we stay tone deaf to his word and unwilling to change, though he's speaking all around us and working among us, he will be justified in whatever judgment he pronounces on us. And so it's a sobering word for us. It's a hard word for us. Praise be to God that his judgments are just. Now, I often give you one thing on a Sunday morning. I don't want to just fire all kinds of applications at you. The Holy Spirit during the moment, the preaching moment, is, is He's bringing and introducing all kinds of applications to you anyways. You're seeing the different contours and areas where this really meets you in the granular areas of your life. I'm confident that He's speaking to you through His Word and through His preached Word and through our morning gatherings, all of that. And I also sometimes enjoy being able to bring like, hey, as a corporate body, this is something that I'm seeing, or this is something that I think could be helpful that I want to expose everybody widely to. And, uh, it, and it's this, there's a, an article on the top of the fold page this morning on the Gospel Coalition's website. And it is something like, the headline says something like, bring your uncensored prayers to Jesus. I'd love for you to just go and read it. I'd love for you to wrestle with what it looks like for you to bring your uncensored doubts. You haven't worked them all out. You're actually coming to the Holy Spirit. You're actually coming to the Lord Jesus. You and I both are with what we have yet to work out, and we're trying to work it out in His presence, saying, Lord, would you teach me? I'm confused here. I don't believe here. I'm struggling here. I'm dejected here. Uh, Whatever it might be, What does it look like for us as a community to bring our uncensored prayers and our uncensored doubts before the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting his heart that he truly is gentle and lowly and that he will walk with us. He encourages us to take his yoke upon us, which is where we will be next week in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. It's the only text in all of the scriptures where Jesus discloses his own heart what his heart is like. So will you pray with me this morning? Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. Thank you for communion. Thank you for calling us to worship you in song. 
Thank you for calling us to, to mingle together in the various places where we find ourselves, whether it's racked with anxiety or whether it's just loving life right now, everything in between. We know that life is so up and down. Thank you for drawing us together to wrestle with these things before you, before your word, and before one another. We love you. We give our morning to you. We give our day to you. We give our lives to you. Thank you for being our God and for calling us close. Help us to take your yoke upon us. You'll lighten our burdens. We we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.